Well, hello, friends. Welcome back. We're so glad you're with us this weekend. Uh, You may have heard that Menlo Church has a new transitional pastor. His name is John Crosby, and we have a special interview that we want to show you today. So take a look. Well, welcome, Pastor John. We're so glad that uh, you've joined our family. Um, So again, welcome, Pastor John. Well, uh, thanks, David. It has uh, been a joke in the Crosby family that if you want to uh, make God laugh, tell him your plans. And uh, it, this has been for the Crosbys, uh, a season where I had a growing excitement uh, uh, about seeing what God could do at Menlo. And I'm looking forward to it. Well, so are we. Uh, we're so excited to receive your call. Uh, Pastor John, tell us a little bit about uh, your family. Sure. I've got a uh, uh, a wonderful wife, Laura, and after the first or second time you hear her speak, you'll uh, you'll think she's so good, you'll be going, do we have to have what's his name? <laughs> she's just uh, terrifically gifted. Uh, Laura and I have two uh, daughters. I call my baby girls, but they're 34 and 33 years old. One on each coast. Katie lives uh, in Washington, D.C. and uh, works for the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and uh, Maggie is uh, out in uh, the Bay with you guys over in Emeryville, where she did her master's degree at at Berkeley. She has a husband, Austin, and we couldn't be more thrilled to be close to him for a change. Well, that's awesome. We look forward to uh, meeting uh, um, Laura as well and and, uh, welcoming her her as well to our Menlo Church family. Um, Well, how did you you and uh, uh, Laura um, uh, make it to Menlo Church? I think that uh, even in the dark times, it's clear that, that God is at work. Uh, for decades, Menlo Church has been not only on my radar screen, but it's one of those congregations that has retained its image as a movement. That is, it, it does things. I, I, 30 years ago, started to be the pastor of a medium-sized church. And as the church grew, one of the first things that happened was I was influenced by the power of team preaching. And I learned that from Walt Gerber at Menlo Church. Some of my best friends over the decades have been uh, folks who have come from your backyard, whether it's Scott Dudley or uh, Scott Farmer or Doug Ferguson and and certainly uh, John. But over the years, Menlo has been an example of a church that is not perfect, but is trying with great creativity to do the work of God. Laura and I feel privileged that in this in-between season, we might be able to both bring peace and energy and some new direction. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much, Pastor John. Well, uh, Menlo Church family, we welcome and receive uh, Pastor John and his wife, Laura, excitedly as our new transition pastor. Please join us um, at our town hall meeting, where you have much more opportunity to ask uh, questions and have a chance to meet uh, Pastor John and Laura. Well, thanks, everyone. And we'll see you this afternoon at the town hall meeting at 1 p.m. According to researcher Brene Brown, belonging is a primary human need. She defines belonging as the innate human desire to be part of something larger than us. Because this yearning is so primal, we often try to acquire it by fitting in and seeking approval. She says more than food and shelter, nothing promotes human flourishing, like having a people and a place of belonging. 
Her research confirms that income level, marriage and children, and perceived security all pale in comparison to belonging and promoting sustained happiness. In other words, everyone longs to belong to something. In high school, I was on the varsity football team. Now, full disclosure, I wasn't a starter or a playmaker. I mean, just look at me. I'm not very big. I'm not very fast. They had an extra helmet sitting around, so I got to put it on and sit on the left side of the bench. As much as I would have enjoyed being on the field during games, under the lights, catching the game-winning touchdown, I was happy just being on the team. I love the camaraderie and the team hangouts, the pep rallies, halftime meetings with coach. We had a tradition on game day, which was always Friday, where we'd wear our jerseys to school to show our school spirit and team pride. Deep down, more than anything else, I played football to belong on a team. There's something in our humanity that makes us want to be part of not just any group, but a special group, an inside group, an exclusive group. By definition, every society includes people who connect, who belong to one another. Yet, every society also includes people who feel left out, who don't get chosen at recess, whose invitations to dances get turned down, who don't make the cut or get voted off the island. And there's this tendency to exclude others because of pride or fear or ignorance or, or maybe the desire to just feel more important. In one of Dr. Seuss's lesser-known stories called The Sneetches, he tells a story about these tall yellow creatures who live on beaches. These creatures are divided into two groups, those who have green stars on their bellies and those who don't have green stars. The green-starred Sneetches, they make up the, the in-crowd. They build exclusive campfires and roast marshmallows around which they sing their special little songs. The Sneetches without green stars on their bellies, they're the outsiders. They're not invited in. They're on the outside looking in. But one day, one day a character, an entrepreneur named Sylvester McMonkey McBean, comes to town with a strange contraption called a star-on machine. For just $3, Sneetches can line up and get green stars on their bellies. And this is instantly popular um, for, uh, for, with all the Sneetches. Uh, they jump in line and they get into this opportunity. And this upsets the original star-bellied Sneetchers who are no longer different and no longer feel special. They no longer feel like they're part of an exclusive group. Now everyone has a star on their belly. But Sylvester McMonkey McBean also has a star-off machine. For only $10, you can get your star, which defined you as an in-person, removed, thus reinventing yourself and making yourself feel special again. Of course, Mr. McBean doesn't care or discriminate between who goes through which machine as long as they pay their fee. So this back and forth escalates over and over until all the sneetches are broken penniless and McBean departs as a rich man. And in the end, neither the plane nor the star bellies knew the difference between each other, and they realized they could all get along and be friends. Of course, we know this type of story is a satire. This little story reveals a profound truth about relationships and people, about the agony of being excluded and left out, and about the thrill and sometimes the snobbery of being included or on the inside. C.S. Lewis, who is a professor at Cambridge and is best known for his Chronicles of Narnia, 
uh, gave a lecture in 1944 called The Inner Ring. He opened with um, a line from Tolstoy's War and Peace where he refers to a character named Boris, who figures out that within the official military hierarchy, there's an unwritten system, a secret code where, where power resides. Lewis was speaking about the reality of inclusion and exclusion, and he wrote, you discover gradually in almost indefinable ways that it, this inner ring of inclusion and exclusion, exists and that you are on the outside of it. And then later, perhaps you are inside it. It is not easy, even at any given moment, to say who is inside and who is outside. Some people are obviously in and some are obviously out but there are always several on the borderline. People think they are in after they have in fact been pushed out of it or before they have been allowed in. This provides great amusement for those who are really inside. I believe that in all of our lives at certain periods and in many of our lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the drive to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside of it. Lewis describes this innate desire as the drive to be inside. Uh, Maybe it's the drive to belong or the drive to be accepted, the drive for approval. Maybe you can relate to this. Have Have you ever been driven like this before? And while drive and motivation can be good things in life, there's also a dark side to this particular kind of drive. Along with this drive to be inside, there is another tendency deep inside the fallen human spirit, and it's the tendency to exclude. It's when we divide the world up into us and them. It's when we take a posture of rejection and withdrawal toward the others. We, we can refuse to offer acceptance or goodwill. We deliberately indulge in feelings of superiority at someone else's expense. Like the Sneetches, there's something in us that feels powerful when we're on the inside and they're on the outside. And here's what we have to remember. Churches are vulnerable to this. As we're going to see today in Acts, the early church had to face their own prejudice and tendency toward exclusion. The the tendency to create an exclusive community with barriers that prevented others, others from coming in. Uh, Let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 15. Luke writes, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. See, these certain people were Jewish Christians who were teaching how someone becomes a follower of Jesus. They were essentially teaching the Gentile believers in Antioch that you had to become Jewish to become a true Christian. They were making the point that Jesus was Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, and God chose the Jews as his people, and he had given them a long list of rules that set them apart as his people. And now there are all these new people who are ethnically not Jewish, Gentiles, who are coming to faith, joining the church and worshiping together. There are people from all over who are, who are coming to faith, and these Jewish Christians are saying to all of the men, you have to be circumcised. You have to become Jewish to be saved. It goes on, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. 
So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. So picture the church. It's growing every day, and people from different backgrounds and cultures are joining the fellowship. They speak different languages. They eat different kinds of foods. They dress differently. They find humor in oddly different things. They have different customs and traditions. And the early churches were largely influenced and expanded through Paul's missionary journeys. He sparked a viral movement of networked house churches full of very diverse kinds of people, a network of multi-ethnic, culturally diverse communities in the most strategic cities of the Roman Empire. People had no idea what to do with these communities because the Roman world had never seen anything like them. In Paul's day, religion was something you're born into, and it's completely bound up in the gods of your people group, in your city, in your family. The way the religious systems worked in Jesus' day was based on a belief that the refusal to associate with people who did not live up to their religious standards was the highest proof of their devotion to God. The righteous had to separate themselves from the outcasts. And the more spiritual you tried to be, the bigger the category of outcasts got. For instance, you had people who were excluded based on their ethnicity, like Jews and Gentiles, or people who were, were ex excluded by gender, men and women, or physical defects, if you were blind or deaf or, or had leprosy, or you were excluded by what was considered a despised occupation, like a tax collector or a shepherd. The outcasts were considered defiled, and to associate them with them would defile the righteous. The righteous believed that the essence of spiritual maturity was in excluding people who were unclean by creating enough hurdles to keep them on the outside. But Jesus comes along. Jesus, who was sinless and innocent, and he embraced the outcasts. He associated with them. He spoke with them. He touched them. He, he ate with them. He loved them. He broke all the rules of exclusivity. Following Jesus meant becoming someone who embraced other kinds of people. And this is what Paul and Barnabas were arguing for. So Luke tells us what happens next in verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. After what was most likely a very lengthy discussion, Peter tells the apostles and elders that their salvation had nothing to do with their ethnicity, their culture, or their family upbringing. They weren't born into it. They didn't earn it. They could not achieve it on their own. Instead, it had everything to do with God's grace. But over time, their rich, beautiful traditions were 
turned into grounds for exclusion of people who didn't fit in. You see, communities always have a way of becoming exclusive over time. One of God's deepest but most often understood characteristics is his desire to include in his community anybody who will trust him. Philip Yancey writes in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, that if he had to summarize all the Old Testament teachings about what foods could be eaten and who was unclean, he would do it under the simple phrase, no oddballs allowed. But, but Jesus overturned all the Jewish categories of clean and unclean. He didn't love people based on their ethnicity or their gender or their social standing. Instead, he provoked intense debates among the Jewish leaders by who he spent time with. Yancey writes, when Jesus came, he replaced the old law with a new rule of grace. We're all oddballs, but God loves us anyway. If you're sitting next to someone right now, look at them and say, you're an oddball, but God loves you anyway. Paul goes on to write to the believers in Rome, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. Last week, if you'll remember, we looked at Paul and how he had experienced radical acceptance from a man named Barnabas, who's now his friend. When no one else was willing to take Paul in, Barnabas showed him grace and hospitality. And Barnabas accepted Paul because of his obedience to the life and teachings of Jesus. To accept someone is to be for them. It is to recognize that it is a very good thing that this person is alive. It means to want what is best for their souls, no matter what they do or where they're from or what they represent. It's the opposite of rejection and exclusion. As followers of Jesus, we can afford to love and accept others because we have first received love and acceptance from God. Remember, Peter told the apostles and the elders, we are accepted by the grace of God. And here's the thing. There might be someone in your life today that you're excluding and rejecting. Maybe you're ignoring them or giving them the cold shoulder because of something they did to you or something they said. Maybe your family is divided by politics or maybe there's a deep rift because you disagree on your views. Or maybe you have a neighbor who voted differently than you did. And every time you see their bumper sticker or the sign on their lawn, you look down your nose at them in contempt. Paul exhorts us to accept one another because we have been accepted by Jesus. Now, now let's be clear. Accepting someone is not the same as approving of all their views and behaviors. It's not about compromising your values and convictions, nor is acceptance the same as simply tolerating or putting up with somebody. Someone may tolerate me, put up with my existence and even my quirks, but there's no love or healing or power in that. People need more than to be tolerated. And this is why Jesus was so attractive to people. When broken people and messed up sinners came to the only sinless person who ever lived, he didn't merely tolerate them and put up with them. He actually liked them. He was genuinely for them. He looked them in the eyes and accepted them and loved them. And it was his love it was his love that transformed their lives from the inside out. They didn't change who they were to be loved. 
They were changed by the power of his love. To accept someone is to affirm to them that you think it's a very good thing they are alive. And one way to show acceptance is by listening, by listening with patience and compassion and kindness. You have the power to listen to someone because there is someone who will listen to you and love you and accept you no matter, no matter what you've done. Or another way you can extend acceptance is by making space for others to belong. And this starts with taking the focus off yourself. When we take the focus off our own need for belonging and create space for others to belong, we find ourselves surrounded by people who are happy to have us in their lives. Jesus said, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. If you want real life, you have to give yours away. Radical acceptance does what rejection, judgment, and self-superiority cannot do. Only radical acceptance, powered by grace and love, can produce a changed life. Imagine what might happen in our world if we were to adopt the way of Jesus. What if we were to cease ever again attacking people's worth or holding them in contempt because of who they are or how they think? What if instead we made space for others who are not like us? Friends, we are the church, and we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for others. Everyone is going to belong to a group that is not for everyone. The question isn't, should everyone be included, but how do we treat and care for those who are on the other side of the boundaries? I think that is the way of Jesus. Because the church is the only institution in the world that exists for those who don't belong. The way of Jesus isn't for everyone, but for those who belong, for those who follow him, we are called to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and to be an alternate society for the world to see what God is like. And for those who want to belong to something like that, we say, you are welcome here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that you love us based on your character and that we simply come to you based on your grace. God, we're also grateful for the reminder that we exist for the needs of others. And so as we remember what mattered to the church 2,000 years ago, may we remember what matters to our church today that you call us to love with grace and humility anyone and everyone in the Bay Area and beyond. Thank you, God, for showing us and reminding us of your amazing love. We love you. We trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.